If you'd open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Let's, uh, let's bow for prayer. Lord, as we come before you this morning, I ask, Lord, that as we continue to work our way through Ecclesiastes, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to deeply consider the things that are said here in this book, and in particular, the things that are being said here in this chapter. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to examine ourselves, to examine our lives, to to take stock as to how our emotions are and how we may or may not control our emotions, how we respond to various situations in life, to success as well as when things don't go as well as we would like them. To look at how we handle tragedy, how we handle negativity, how we handle disappointment. I pray, Father, you would help us to learn how we are to think about life and think while we're living life. We pray that you would give us the answers that we desperately need, the guidance that we long for, and the wisdom that is necessary. And so, Father, we ask that as we read and as we contemplate this passage today, we ask that you would indeed bless us, Father. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 18. Solomon writes, I hated all the toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity." This week and next week, I want us to really get a grasp for what Solomon is experiencing here as he thinks about and really responds emotionally to the things that he is observing and the things that he is seeing. To say it, I guess you say superficially, he's pretty bummed. He doesn't like what he sees, and you can tell here in the end that Uh, His conclusion is our days are full of sorrow, and then mentions that even at night, his heart does not rest. And the idea there is that he can't turn his brain off because he keeps thinking about these things and it bothers him. And so he's not able to get a lot of sleep. So what I want to do 
beginning today is, number one, let's start with this. Not every unpleasant or difficult experience is a sign of God's displeasure. So we're going to make sure that we, that we understand life correctly. There are times that we go through uh, difficult experiences, and it, and it is that God is displeased with us. But not everything that goes wrong is that. Sometimes, in fact, our most painful feelings, our most distressing circumstances, are the very means through which God would deeply transform us. I don't really recommend, in a sense, reading these individuals we call class, uh, um, um, uh, Christian mystics. I actually like reading some of them because it makes you think. They thought differently. I'm not into all their practices and some of their weird stuff they get into because uh, I think they can, they can kind of move away from Scripture. But there was a sense for many of them, especially the, the older ones, the ones that are all dead now, uh, there was a sense that they, they did want to experience the, a deep work of God. They, they really wanted to have a sense of, of God uh, being with them. They weren't looking to have an experience and be happy and write a book and make money. That, that's not what they were doing. In the same way that when two people love each other and you really want to get to know that person you want to know what they think. You want to know what they feel. You want to know why they think the way they think. You want to know why they feel the way they feel. You really want to know them. That's, that's oftentimes the, the stress that these uh, Christian mystics are, are emphasizing in their life and what they want to have. There was one, he was a Spanish mystic. He was called St. John of the Cross. And he was one who, I guess you would say, made famous a phrase that we don't really use too much anymore. Uh, it was used for a, for a long time, and it was, it's called the Dark Night of the Soul. And he wrote some things about that, which are pretty cool, uh, and I think it's valuable to read. But the Dark Night of the Soul, that phrase has been used by some to describe almost any painful experience. Not all painful experiences may qualify as a dark night of the soul because the dark night of the soul, you're not doing any sleeping uh, because of whatever it is that's going on. But the dark night, then, is much more significant than just simple misfortune. In fact, it, again, it can be a very deep time of transformation for the believer. It can be a movement towards indescribable freedom and joy. Now, just so that you there's... I'm hoping not to confuse anybody. As we kind of move through this, I'm going to be making statements at times that are applicable to believers and statements that are applicable to non-believers because both can experience this, but the outcome is different. Uh, for the non-believer, uh, our prayer should be for them if they go through this is they would, they would come to Christ. And, and there are many who've come to Christ in this way. And, and you'll get an understanding of what I'm talking about as, I, as we work our way through this. But it's also something that can be uh, very important for the believer. And I believe, personally, that it's actually necessary uh, in our growth as believers, that we experience this, and I would say even more than once. The dark night of the soul, so to speak. The soul is going to be strengthened and confirmed. Uh, in fact, I'll, let me just quote this uh, uh, St. John of the Cross the soul is strengthened and confirmed in the virtues and made ready for the inestimable delights of the love of God. Only by means of the dark night 
and the heartache that accompanies it can one's deepest desire be satisfied in spiritual union with God. And so the point then, as we talk about the dark night of the soul and all the different things we talk about, is where the individual, and I'll mention this several times, what I'm talking about is when you come to the end of yourself. The idea is that you have expended all of your energy, all of your knowledge, whatever strength you have, you've got nothing left. And the trouble still remains. And all you have left is God. And the reason why that is important is because being made in the image of God and having the gifts and the abilities and the talents that we have, many of us, we've done this. We've may, maybe you've done this your whole life. That regardless of the trying circumstances you find yourself in, you're able to make it through in your strength. You may even mention God a few times, and you may even pray a few times, but the majority of the ability that you have, the majority of the strength that you're using to endure what you're going through is your own strength. And so at times, we... We have not yet experienced it. What is it like to be totally dependent upon God and no one and nothing else? And we need that. We have had the misfortune, in a sense, all of us, even though we may have had a few difficulties along the way, we've been born in a country, at a place, at a time that is in just unbelievably wealthy. And that is a blessing, but it can be very unfortunate, especially for the soul, and our relationship to God. Now, I'm not advocating that you go out and just get rid of everything you have, sell everything you have, go out your own way, and just live on the streets. At the same time, we do need to recognize that perhaps we have been made not just soft because of that, because some of us, again, we are hard in the sense that we can gut out most things. That's not what we're talking about. Soft, I would say, for the believer, is our faith is weak because we don't use it much. We haven't really exercised our faith. We haven't had to exercise our faith. I mean, if you think about it, for many of us, maybe for most of us, we don't really have to exercise a whole lot of faith because we get a paycheck every week or every two weeks. And we, and we, we expect that paycheck to be there. And the fact that it's there all the time, again, isn't a bad thing. But if we are not in tune with God, it can become something that is detrimental to our health as believers. It's detrimental to the strength of our soul. And, and that's why if suddenly severe persecution was to come our way, we may not do so well. We wouldn't do as well as many believers do throughout the world who, who live by faith daily and their faith is profoundly powerful and strong. But I want you also to keep in mind that when you live in that kind of faith, you do have an incredible intimate knowledge of God. You do experience, even on the level where we can feel, the incredible grace and strength and power and love of God. At times we may get a glimpse of that. The mystics wanted a great deal of that. Those who live where there is severe persecution and most likely severe poverty experience that all the time. They wouldn't call themselves great Christians. But they do possess something, experience something we should be a little jealous for. And so we need to think about these things that Solomon is writing and the position he finds himself in and what he's experiencing really very important. Last week I mentioned this. 
I talked about how some individuals will experience an existential crisis. That's a moment when an individual questions the very foundations of their life, whether their life has any meaning, purpose, or value. That's true across the board. Believers and non-believers alike can have an existential crisis. In fact, sometimes individuals go, oh, that's what that's called. Uh, They now have a title for what they're experiencing. An existential crisis is often provoked by some kind of significant event in the life of the person. It may be psychological trauma, maybe marriage, getting married, or something in marriage. Maybe some kind of separation, uh, a major loss, the death of a loved one. Maybe a life-threatening experience where an individual almost dies and they're very aware that they almost died, that they could have an existential crisis. Maybe a new boyfriend or a girlfriend can cause this. Some kind of psychoactive drug use can cause this, whether it's legal or illegal. Your, your adult children leaving home. Maybe we should add adult children coming back home. Uh, <laughs> uh, reaching a personally significant age, an age that's significant to you, whether it's turning 16 or turning 40. Some of us are turning 60 soon. That would be me. Uh, it's difficult to imagine that, but nonetheless it's true. And so these different things can provoke introspection about your life, about your impending death, and those types of things. Most of us heard, I believe it was Monday morning, what happened last week, Sunday night in Las Vegas. For some, even not even being there may cause them to have an existential crisis. Many of those who experience that may experience an existential crisis, but I'll tell you this. My personal belief is we don't have much of that. The existential crisis I'm talking about, we need more of that. But we don't have it. There's reasons for that. I'll mention those in a moment. In the face of the Las Vegas massacre, we want to know the facts. When you hear about it, we immediately want to know the facts. What happened? When did it happen? Uh, you know, who did it? Many individuals who experienced it would have been, were probably crushed and in dismay Even those who weren't there are crushed and dismayed over once again senseless killing of so many. Of course, it is interesting how we function because even though 58 were killed that one night, I think the previous weekend, 59 were killed in Chicago. We've become accustomed to that. This was different because of the way that it was done, but it happens all the time. We want facts to steady our minds. We want to grapple with the understanding of it. We must have facts, but we can easily be overwhelmed by them. If you don't get a chance to listen to it, Al Mohler does a thing called The Briefing. It's like a podcast. If you're older like I am, you may not be sure what that is, but a young person can tell you. Um, And if you have a phone, you probably can actually get it on your phone. It's free. So just find a teenager and say, can you put this on my phone for me? And they can set you up. And then you can just push a button and you can hear this every morning. Uh, it's a Christian perspective on the news. It's about 17 minutes. It's very valuable. I don't get to hear it every morning, but most mornings or at some point in the day I, want to, I, I try to listen to it. Uh, he's a great thinker, very intelligent, loves God, solid theology. He brings a good perspective to the news. So, uh, and you don't have to read anything. You can listen to it while you drive. Um, in fact, sometimes it's so good, if you, only get to, if you get to work in five minutes, you might drive around the block to finish it and then park. Um, that's always a sign of a good Christian, I think is when you get somewhere early, but you listen to something valuable, and you purposely take a longer way, or maybe park at the back of the garage, 
uh, wherever you are so that you, could, so that you can have more time to hear it. Um, it's good stuff. Anyway, he talked about this event and the way we were responding to this event that took place last week, Sunday night. And, and so I'm going to read you several things that he said because I think it's thought-provoking and helpful because of what Solomon is getting into here in this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The most difficult question is why? Why premeditate a large-scale random killing? Was there a political motivation? Is there a psychiatric or drug-related reason? Our minds crave an answer. But why do we ask why? Why can we not help ourselves in asking why? It's because we're created in God's image. We are moral creatures who cannot grasp or cannot understand the world around us without moral categories. We are moral creatures inhabiting a moral universe, and our moral sense of meaning is the faculty that's most perplexed when we are overwhelmed by horror and grief. And what troubles us the most is the thought that we may never know why this happened, or at least why the gunman thought it was somehow necessary. That's one of the aspects of evil, is that it is often absurd. It is ultimately inexplicable. It cannot be resolved by human means. It is an act of pure evil. Evil is a fact. The secular world cannot use that word with coherence or sense. Because the acknowledgement of evil requires the affirmation of a moral judgment and a moral reality that is above human judgment. If we are just accidental beings in an accidental universe, then nothing can really be evil. Evil points to a necessary moral judgment made by a moral authority greater than we are, a transcendent and supernatural moral authority, which is God. So many people today, somehow their view of things, because they don't really think about it, is that they don't use the word accident, but that's really what they believe. We're just kind of just here, and things just kind of happen. I also believe that what man in general thinks is that we're all basically good, which is not the Christian view of things. And that's why they try so hard to find out why it's happened. And this is because they don't want to just say there's evil out there. They don't like that. They believe that man is good. So then the reason why this man did the shooting is because something is broken. If it's broken, we need to discover what it is because we believe we can fix it. Because man doesn't want to deal with God. And that man needs forgiveness he wants to fix the, the gene, the chromosome, whatever it is. And then eventually what that's going to lead to, and just so you know, again, there are people who do think this way. This is not just the stuff of movies and sci-fi. If we can figure out the gene or chromosome or whatever that's broken that caused this person to do that, maybe we can identify it when the child is born. And that's why the, one of the many reasons, the fact that abortion is wrong and it's murder and all the rest, why it being around so long has already prepared our culture for the door to be opened for infanticide. You may think that would never happen here. I guarantee you, not only will it, it probably already has. And there are those who want to march down that road that if we can, that's why they try so hard to identify Something there so then they can then say, because that's going to be the next one of the new dilemmas we're going to face. If your child has chromosome Z and all serial killers had chromosome Z, 
Look at all the good we would do if we eliminate your child now. That kind of thinking is out there. It's been out there for a long time. It was in the field of eugenics. And it's just kind of shifted some. So there actually will be a moral argument for infanticide. And that's the moral argument they're going to, in one way or another, they're going to begin to use that. But anyway, nonetheless. So moral relativism has produced a generation of Americans who resist calling anything really evil. We might say that it was an evil deed uh, to a degree, but we're not going to say the person was evil. In fact, they may even deny uh, moral facts. This one guy who was a college professor at um, some college, doesn't really matter, he said, many college-age students don't believe in moral facts. By the time students arrive at college, they have already been told over and over again that there are no moral facts and that nothing is objectively right or wrong. And that's why when we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, what we're really trying to also develop is a Christian worldview. How does a Christian think about these things? A Christian worldview that's based on the Bible can explain why moral facts exist and how we can know them. Only the biblical worldview explains why sinful humanity commits such horrible moral wrongs. The Christian worldview also promises that God will bring about a final act of moral judgment that will be the final word on right and wrong. And those who experience the existential crisis for the non-believer, what some of them are experiencing, maybe many, but what some of them are experiencing is the sense that that's coming. That God does exist and there's a moral judgment. Remember Romans 1? All men know that God exists. All men know that God is angry about unrighteousness and ungodliness. Man seeks to suppress that truth. These events happen. A man has for a moment or for a while an existential crisis. And what he is faced with is his own sin and a sense of dread that he's going to be judged and he already knows he's guilty. That's a fab- Just so you know, that is a fabulous place for a person to be. It's fabulous. Because that precedes, I believe, a willingness to hear the gospel. We don't have too many of these anymore. So events such as the massacre that we had in Las Vegas... Or what Solomon is going through here, when he sees all these things and he's thinking about them and he he can't get any sleep because it's just so wrong. It just seems so meaningless. But at the same time, remember that the main point he's making is, is he's convinced somehow there is meaning, but he can't grasp it. And when he sees these things, it's just elusive. How can this be? And there be meaning. And he wants there to be meaning. The anguish that one can feel or experience at times, again, has been referred to poetically as the dark night of the soul. And again, it can be totally loving, healing, and a liberating process for the believer, and even for the non-believer. Whether it feels that way is another question. The reason the dark night is difficult and disturbing is not because God is absent or inactive in a person's life, although to some it can feel that way. The reason... The dark night is distressing is precisely because God is working in a powerful, deep, and a transformative way. Again, as I mentioned before, I've often referred to this as coming to the end of yourself. And I do believe it's a very important aspect of life for all. It is a very important component in the maturing process. 
which again is one of the reasons why I am against using medication to resolve problems of living. Because we eliminate the existential crisis. We, that's why we have to think, we have to have a theology of suffering, which we've talked a little bit about before. And the idea is not that we just want people just to suffer at random. It's not that. And it's not that we are against comforting people. We're not against that at all. We shouldn't be. But we should be against this idea that somehow all suffering has to be eliminated. Suffering is important. And when someone is suffering, when they are in anguish, mental anguish, emotional anguish, I believe that what we are supposed to do at those times is to think. And that's, that's what we don't want to do. That's when we, we sometimes, you may, be, you may have at different times of your life come close to an existential crisis, but you avoided it because you could watch late night TV. Or now because you can go to YouTube or turn on your phone or check Facebook or whatever it happens to be. But you'll notice that through the years, you know, back in the day when TV was, there's only three or four channels, you could become quickly bored with it. And so then, you know, when man came up with cable and satellite TV, now there's 200, 400 stations. There's just no way on earth that you can get bored. And yet how many people complain of that? What do we say? There's, there's nothing on. Well, actually, there's 400 different programs on. But you know what? They're all just mindless. And, you know, we've come to experience the mindlessness of what's on TV. And once we find ourselves in the exact spot we may have been before when there were only four channels to choose from. It's a great thing. But now, when that happens, you grab your phone. Or if you have a special TV, smart TV now, you can go to the YouTube and just immerse yourself in more mindlessness uh, if you want. It's just, you know, until you finally fall to sleep out of sheer exhaustion. And if we can do that long enough, we might begin to feel better after a couple of days and we no longer have to think about what was going on. So I, you know, when if, so if you have friends or children or parents or whoever, and, and you begin to see the beginnings of an existential crisis, immediately immerse yourself in prayer for that person that they would experience that and ask these questions and think about what's going on. It is important, very important. Too often, our, as I mentioned, our, our desire is to eliminate pain rather than suffering. Some people have said that we should not have to suffer emotionally or mentally. I don't believe that statement is true. Again, it's a good thing to provide comfort in suffering. It's not a good thing to eliminate suffering all the time. Let me give you an example. Say you're praying for your son. Let's say your son's an adult, and he, he does not know Christ, and you're praying for him. And all of a sudden, he begins to experience panic attacks, which he, he can't explain. Sleeplessness. He has outbursts of anger. He has mental anguish at times. He begins now to have problems at work and problems at home. And so you suggest that he come and speak to me because I'm free. So, you know, I don't take your insurance. But anyway, so I talk with him. But let's say that I have bought in to today's view of man and man's view of suffering. And so I have a friend who's a shrink, psychiatrist. And so I say, oh, you need to go see my friend. And my friend immediately puts your son on Prozac or Zoloft or Paxil or Celexa or 
Klonopin or Xanax or something like that. He immediately feels better. He's better able to handle stress, or so he thinks. He can now get some sleep. And he also now sees no need to talk to me or to anyone. He has no need now to reevaluate his life. No reason to think about the way he's living. And in many cases, he now has no need to even hear what the gospel is. All, so your prayer should be, or maybe you should be thanking God that Bob doesn't believe in the way of man. And that suffering can be very, very advantageous. But you see, if we buy into the world, because we have a love for our loved ones, our friends. If someone's going through true anguish, I mean, I'm not just talking about they're having a bad day. I mean, they, they look a wreck. Sometimes we just, we want to do something. And so like the world, it's just, those pills are so easy. But that may not, often, may not be what is best for them. What they need is maybe you to help them. And immediately, because of the world, we've been convinced that as a Christian, there's nothing I can offer. It's a lie. First of all, you have something to offer. You are a friend who cares. You'd be amazed that that is the primary thing most people need. is just a friend who cares enough to listen. And maybe just ask a few questions. Help them work through it. Help them think about things. I'm pretty convinced you can spot good and bad. So your friend is going through a hard time, and maybe you've seen him a little rude with his wife. So he starts going through all these things. Remember that depression doesn't come out of nowhere. There's always a reason. Anxiety doesn't come out of nowhere. There's normally a reason. At least 95% of the time there is. So you can ask him the question, where do you think all this comes from? And they may say, I have no clue. Now we can help them ask more questions. But how are things at home? Fine. No, really. How are things at home? Dude, I've seen you snap at your wife. It seems to be a lot. We sometimes are uncomfortable. Just tell them that. If you are their friend, tell them. Say, I, I, you seem to be like on edge. Like There's a lot of anger. And Now, sometimes we don't want to do that because that person may, it, the floodgates may open and you will be overwhelmed with all the stuff they tell you. Relax. Listen to it all. You don't have to have all the answers. You need to listen. Pick maybe the few things that stand out to you. Ask them questions. And if you still aren't sure what to do towards end, you can say, that is truly overwhelming. I do know there are answers. You can say, I do know that God has answers. It's not magic. You pray for them. Ask God to awaken them. Awaken them to the wrong that they're doing, to the sin in their life. There's all kinds of ways to go. If you really get stuck, you can say, well, I got this friend who's free. The pastor of my church, we can go see him. 
or Tim's free too. You can go see Tim. Right? Or someone else in the church that you know is mature. Let's spend some time with them. That's what they need. And we can help them through that. So don't be afraid of it. But also we need to make sure that as we look at these things that we understand this for ourselves as well. When you begin to feel that pressure and you begin to question things, don't just view it as, oh, you're weak. It's not because you're weak. And don't just try to find more things to entertain yourself. Think about it. Think about these things. At least ask yourself, why is God? Because God is behind all of it. Why is God letting me experience all this? Is there something God's trying to get me to understand? We sometimes don't ask those questions because we already know what the answers are going to be. And we don't like them. Let me read to you from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 8. That's what Paul writes. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, for our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure. We were burdened above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Very simple. He is burdened beyond measure. This is all the trouble he's having in life. He is burdened above his strength. Paul is despairing of life, meaning it would be better to be dead because this is so bad. He had the sentence of death in himself. The conclusion is, is that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. The issue here is, who is it we are trusting in? That's why it's important to come to the end of yourself. Because we normally trust ourselves much more than we should. There's nothing wrong with understanding that you have a lot of abilities. There's nothing wrong with that. We trust God. Let me read it to you again. That was from the New King James. Let me read this to you again from the ESV. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers. All right. So he doesn't want them to be ignorant. But he doesn't want them to be ignorant just of the suffering he's going through. The ignorance he's talking about is that last phrase. The phrase of not trusting in ourselves but in God. He says, We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So I think the ESV makes it a little more clear here that he, that because the, the implication is, is that they had received the sentence of death. God was behind all these things. So they, he would be forced to rely on God. Be forced to stop trusting in himself. Because Paul had a lot of abilities. He's a smart guy. He's, he's very intellectual. He, he's, he's, he's a pretty witty guy. He's pretty resourceful. This is what he says. Let me read it to you again. This time from the Amplified, which often, not always, but in this case, will amplify the meaning. Indeed, we felt within ourselves that we had received the very sentence of death. So there, again, it's, it's not necessarily that they had received the sentence of death, but the trouble was so great, that's what it felt like. But again, that was to keep us from trusting in and depending on ourselves instead of on God, who raises the dead. He, he throws that in there, who raises the dead, because if anybody is in an impossible situation, it's the dead. 
What can the dead do for themselves? Absolutely nothing. So the idea then is that I come to the end of myself so that I am like a dead person. Unless God does something, nothing is going to be done. I'm just going to lay there and rot. So I am to learn to trust not in myself, not to depend upon myself, but in God. Oh, who, by the way, raises the dead. And there are times, maybe all of us need this. The time when we grow as believers deeply, where we are transformed by the Spirit of God, is when we come to that point. And it can come in a lot of ways. You know, no matter what your station in life, you have a child or a grandchild who is sick and they are on their way to dying, we normally pray really well then. We normally have no problem finding time to pray. We usually have no problem being intense in our prayers. We usually don't struggle too much to find what it is we would like God to do. We also, at the same time, are very much aware that he's the only one who can do anything. Period. And that may be the crisis that you go through. It may be other things. The point is, is that it's important. So the dark night can be profoundly a good thing. It is an ongoing spiritual process in which we are liberated from attachments. That would be the paycheck, the job, your own intellect, your own physical strength, whatever. We are liberated from our attachments, our compulsions, and empowered to live and to love more freely. The darkness of the night implies nothing sinister, only that a liberation takes place, most likely in hidden and unseen ways, beyond our understanding. It happens mysteriously. It happens in secret. It is beyond our conscious control because it is the changing of the heart and a deeper transformation. In the dark night, the believer, or the non-believer for that matter, comes to the end of themselves and directly experiences, at least for the believer, authentic spiritual transformation through the recognition, and as some of the mystics might say, through the infusion of God's presence or the infusion of God's grace, where we experience God in a very real and different way. Because we are now aware, because God's always been with us. We are now aware of that in a new way. So it's not that God does something different he's never done before. It's our awareness, our, our ability to, to see and grasp things. There's a renewed flow of energy, so to speak. I don't mean the weird stuff, but where you are energized, so to speak, and, and you, are, you are receptive. You are seeing things much more clearly than ever before. Just remember, the experience of the dark night is not an easy process to endure. So, if you have some friends and they're going through times of difficulty and they tell you that they're going to go to see someone, which is normally, in many cases now, not so much a psychiatrist, it'd be their regular doctor who's going to give them something, strongly encourage them to wait. Just hold on. Maybe we could try some other things first. And they say, like what? Well, we could talk and we could pray. It may be a new thing for them, but... But you see what that requires? And sometimes what happens, what's going to be revealed is where our heart is. It may be revealed that we don't have faith that God can and will work in the situation. It might also reveal something else. 
we don't care as much about them as we say we do because we don't want to spend that kind of time. That's hard. It's very difficult. With certain people, it's easy. With some other people who can be exasperating, it's hard. That's why we need to ask for God to change our hearts. You knowing this person is going through a thing does not happen by accident. Perhaps you need to go through it yourself first. Maybe we should ask the Lord would cause us to come to the end of ourselves. It's not always very pretty, but it's important. So see, you go back to what it is that's going on here with Solomon, and we sometimes will focus on the wrong thing. It's not wrong to focus where he talks about everything is, is vanity and a great evil. But I think what we're doing today and what we'll do next week is when he mentions his days are full of sorrow and the night, even in the night, his heart does not rest. We need to look at that because it's the aspect of human experience that is of vital importance to the maturation process of the believer and is often the vital, a vital moment when an individual begins to at least willingly really hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'd be amazed at how many people that you know that when a loved one dies, when a loved one dies, it's very close to them. Now, this isn't, I'm not gonna, we're not going to say that everybody who does this is somehow wrong, but it's just amazing to me how many, how many times when someone dies that someone else recommends to bring the family, oh, you need to go see a doctor, he can give you something. Because we are terrified of the grief. First of all, grief is not going to be over in two weeks. Sometimes grief can last for a long time. Grief can be very valuable, especially for the believer. But maybe it's valuable for the non-believer as well because you are standing face to face to death. And we need to look it in the eye and be able to cope with it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, there are things that we experience in the world that have come about because of sin. Death, Mayhem, murder, chaos, catastrophe, disease, tragedy. We know, Lord, all these things we experience. And it takes place because of the sin of man. And the world has been cursed by sin. Father, too often like the world, we just try to escape all of it. But we just escape. And we don't ever deal with it. I pray, Father, that you would help us to not be afraid of these things. To not be afraid of what it may do to us emotionally or mentally. I pray, Lord, that anyone here today as a believer who may be headed down this path, we ask that you would help them to think through these things. To seek out a brother or sister in Christ to pray with them and maybe pray through all these days with them and for them. And Father, they may grow as a believer. May we long for that. And Father, for those that we know or maybe those that are here today who maybe have experienced some of this in the past, maybe are close to experiencing it again, Father, we pray that you would use it to their advantage. That even though all these evil things take place, they're not outside of your control. That, Lord, that you can use them in wonderful and amazing and in redemptive ways. 
and they can be used to redeem the lost. And so, Father, we ask that for those who are experiencing these things as non-believers, we pray, Lord, that you would hold them up, but lead and guide and direct their thoughts and their heart. May we be faithful, Father, in presenting to them the gospel and realize, Lord, that it's not that we're trying to pounce on someone in their time of despair, to take advantage of them, to sell them something they don't want. But, Lord, that what we are offering to them is the only cure and very real comfort that they can ever have, which is Christ himself. But some of us, Father, hesitate because we've not always experienced that comfort ourselves. And so, Father, in this crazy and mixed-up world, we ask that you would continue to be merciful to us and that you would help us, Father, in our weakness. And I pray that in our anguish we would turn to you and that we would not turn to the distractions that are around us. And again, Father, for those who may not know Christ, they may have been around the church a lot, but they don't know Christ. We pray, Lord, that it would be helpful that you would put a spotlight on their sense of anguish. And they would have a, this sense to even a greater degree. That, Father, they may realize the emptiness of their own souls. And they would come to the open arms of Christ. And so, Father, again, we can only thank you for your incredible wisdom and for the truth that regardless of what we go through, you will never abandon us. We thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.